from the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. This is Update One, the club's official podcast. It features newsworthy stories originating from the NPC facilities, as well as broader topics related to journalism, communications, press freedom, and transparency. On March 10th, the National Press Club announced that Executive Director Bill McCarran would be stepping down after more than 15 years of distinguished service. I'm Adam Cano, co-chair of the club's broadcast podcast committee, and I'm joined by Bill to discuss this news and to look back on a remarkable tenure of leadership. Bill, welcome to Update One. Thank you, Adam. Good to be here. Before we talk about you and your news, can you remind our listeners about the role of executive director here at the National Press Club? Sure. Uh, The executive director is the sort of top staff position. Um, So as executive director, I report to the president and by extension, the board. And um, uh, the role is really hire, fire, recruit, retain, motivate the staff, um, assistance in strategic direction, budget, which is an important part of it. And then I have seven or eight direct reports um, that I'm responsible for. You were first a regular member of the club starting in 1986. So what attracted you to the MPC and what was the atmosphere like back then? Oh, yeah. Well, it was a different time then. It was uh, pretty wide open and and, um, fun. Not the club isn't fun now, but the bar was pretty busy place. And um, uh, there were, you know, uh, you just walk right in. There were no gates or security or those kind of concerns. And uh, what attracted me was I was coming to Washington to start a business and uh, wanted to be in the National Press building. And of course, if you're in the building, part of the reason to be in the building was to be close to the club and be able to use it when you needed it. And, um, you know, it was a great place and still is a great place to meet uh, reporters and uh, and sources. And that was important to me in my work. So, you know, I was on the 12th floor of the building. So one, one floor up uh, to the to the club, meet people to the bar and that sort of thing. So it was very convenient, uh, very fun and robust programming. And it was just a great experience. The club's board of governors hired you as general manager in 2007 and then appointed you executive director in 2010. The first person to hold that executive director title in the organization's 116 year history. So tell me about each of those roles as you assumed them, what was going on at that time? Yes. So general manager uh, is really like a sort of a COO kind of job. And um, what that means is uh, really just responsible for the primarily for the business. And my predecessor, a guy named John Bloom was uh, from the hotel uh, industry and so I was filling that role and those shoes. And uh, because I think because I was involved in the club and programs and mission uh, as a member, um, yeah, I was either called upon or, or was involved more in those kinds of issues working with members. And so uh, a few years in, they decided to change the title to executive director to sort of reflect uh, what was you know, what I was doing that was kind of uh, different. And uh, maybe it was easier for me to do that sort of stuff uh, because I'd been a member uh, uh, and because of the skill set and interest, I'd say. 
for decades, the club was driven by print journalism, but it was during your tenure that a broadcast task force was first created, followed by the team or committee that we now have today. Can you tell us a little more about the genesis there? Sure. Well, the I mean, it's uh, pretty obvious that the uh, that broadcast was an important part. I mean, when the club started in uh, in 1908, it wasn't an important part, right? And so there was an evolution. And I think uh, the having a broadcast team gave some of our broadcast members, you know, an on ramp to the club in a way that was uh, um, welcoming and helpful. And I think that was imp- important uh, just f- for socialization there. You know, I don't think it's so much anymore, but it's, at, at points there has been a gulf between uh, print and broadcast and uh, you know, print people, I would say in general, were not always as accepting of broadcast when it was new. And um, I think some of that has worn away, but there still are sort of those issues and, you know, broadcast people, uh, like to be with each other. And I think that's fine. And, and so the committee gave, a you know, gave away for that. And I'll just harken back to a couple of people like, uh, Ralph Malvick, I remember, and Sam, uh, Holt and, um, uh, even Ron Nesson. And these were, you know, kind of in their own way, giants in the broadcast business and members of the club. And it was good for them to have a place to go and be with each other. Just, just, uh, socially. Right. Absolutely. No. And I, I remember all of them and they are absolute lions of the industry. And that increased focus on broadcasting is also evident in the purchase of what is now the broadcast operations center on the fourth floor of the national press building, followed by its recapitalization for, for high definition TV. Those must not have been easy calls to make, right? Yeah. Well, the, uh, the broadcast center purchase happened just before my time here. I think that was completed in 2006. And there were a group of members that were, you know, very involved in wanting to take the club that direction. Uh, uh, our friend, you know, Mark Hamrick, uh, you know, Jonathan Salant was involved in that. Jerry Zarimsky, who was the president when I came in and there were, and there were others. And I think in part, it was a business decision um, there's a unique space on four that can, uh, host a, a good size studio. And there, there are not other spaces in the building that have those same kind of, uh, requirements. And so, uh, if the club didn't step in, someone else would have purchased the facility and, and made a business of that. So it made sense for the club to move. Uh, we didn't really have the, the money for it, but we had credit. So we borrowed a lot of money and, and made the purchase and retrofitted the place to a modern standard then. And uh, uh, I took over in 2007. So it was more or less, okay, now we've got it. We built it. How do we make it, you know, work financially and for the members also? Arguably the rise of digital media was an even more disruptive force for the club. What has that meant for us and how has, uh, the organization evolved to account for an increasingly digital first communications world? Oh, that's a good question. So in the beginning with the broadcast center, for example, probably, you know, close to a hundred percent of what we were doing, maybe 90% was going on television. It was being made for the spec of television. And um, now I'd say maybe 50% or less is, is, is being made for television 
Um, it's purpose built for, you know, going onto a digital platform and, and all of it is, is, is going on a digital platform. But I mean, some of this is exclusively for digital. So uh, that changes, you know, uh, some things about how you have to uh, uh, operate and the kinds of projects you're involved in, uh, I'd say expands them. Um, so then the club, the, the team on the staff itself has, has had to change where if you go back to the, uh, you know, before we built a broadcast center, uh, you know, you have a, a relatively small percentage of staff being, uh, you know, uh, tech background, tech workers. And, uh, and now it's a, a much larger you know, percentage of the staff and, and, you know, and maybe more going forward. So uh, being, having digital, you know, natives in all positions is important to the club. And uh, certainly there's more a digital uh, a team on the staff at the club than, than, you know, pre the 2006 purchase of the, of the broadcast center. Sadly, one thing that has not changed over the decades is the need for strong advocacy on the topic of press freedom. In fact, it's arguably under more strain here and around the world than ever. You've made that a hallmark of your tenure leading the club. Where does that drive come from? Yeah, well, I've I've been interested in this issue for a long time. Uh, I guess where it comes from, my my wife was a, a broadcast journalist in 2005. She had an incident with the Prince George's County Police uh, while reporting, where she was um, pulled over. There were seven police cars. She was being held at gunpoint. She was ultimately uh, injured in this process. And you know we brought suit against, uh, against the police department. And, you know, in that I learned that, uh, you know, you can, uh, take a journalist off the street, um, uh, injure them, stop their reporting. And there's, uh, there's not a lot that, you, that journalism can do about that. And, you know, the journalists need to band together when they're, when they're in trouble. And when we went to court, there were a small number of journalists that were in the courtroom. Uh, you're, you're kind of on your own in these cases. And I understand why uh, journalists don't want to make themselves the story. And I, I get that. But in issues of press freedom, the journalist is the story and needs needs support. And uh, so that, maybe that's the genesis of it. But I would say for me, and I don't know why, to be honest, uh, Adam, but I I really engaged with the Jason Resian story, the Washington mm -hmm. uh, Jason of the Washington Post. That was in 2015. He was taken in 2014. Um, I got to know his brother and his family well, and they did a very good job of uh, helping me understand just what he was going through and they were going through. And uh, you know, my sense was if this can be done to the Washington Post. Uh, it can be done to almost anyone. And it was it, it, it just struck me as how egregious a violation of rights this was and the suffering uh, that was uh, that he was enduring. So I think it's sort of those two things were really formative, um, you know, for me. And then I, as you say, it's growing. And so I see it. I see it more and more around the world and and in this country as well. Yeah, I distinctly remember uh, for the Jason Rezaian campaign, um, you organizing a live reading, I guess it was a live stream on YouTube of his work for, I think it was 24 hours. 
Um, and each of us had the opportunity to read some of his pieces over the air and in between talk about the importance of of him being released. And, and that really was um, remarkable to be part of. And I, I actually happened to end up with the time slot right before his boss at the Post, who was um, said some very kind words. And I just you know, sort of couldn't believe that, you know, he was thanking me when what we were all trying to do was so much bigger. Yeah, well, thank you for participating in that. And that's a key, having uh, having wide participation on that. Obviously, you're you're remembering it years from years ago, but it had it had an effect. I mean, uh, people who participated still remember doing that. And um, I think I think for journalists, it's very hard to figure out they have the passion, but what can they do that's, you know, within uh, their sort of uh, ethical framework, uh, but that also makes a difference. And um this felt for people like a way to really make a difference. And I was, I was really pleased with how many people um, yourself and, and others that came out to, uh, you know, to do that, including a lot of people at all hours of the night. It was a, it was an interesting technique. It was. And all those efforts would be for naught if the club didn't continue to exist. And so uh, one of the things that I think people will certainly remember fondly about your term here was the business acumen that you brought to the club. And I'm just curious as to your thoughts about, you know, what you saw when you came in and looked at this, you know, purely from a business perspective. Yeah, I, I saw it as a turnaround opportunity. I mean, the club has this wonderful, iconic brand. Uh, and, but at the time it was uh, in a, a high debt, uh, no, no reserves, um, a business model that was not, uh, um, uh, profitable. And I just thought that, uh, you know, we would attack on those areas and try to figure out how to, uh, shore up, you know, how we did our business so that we were making margin and, um, get, pay off the debt and, uh, and start to build reserves from the profits. And that was not, uh, I mean, people got it. Uh, I would say in the beginning, I probably had about a quarter of the staff, you know, with me. Uh, and over time, they got it more and more. And um, it involved a change in how we worked. And uh, and the members were, the leadership of the membership was really great about partnering on this because just long term, I mean, they could see, you know, you just you just have to do this. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, the, and, you know, the club had, rightly committed a lot of resources to the, to the broadcast center, but there was going to be a while before we saw that as a, as a full payback. So um, I don't think we had a choice uh, and I had not done a kind of a, a turnaround environment. I'd been in a startup environment. Yeah. I'd been in a high growth environment. I'd been in a public company environment, but I, I hadn't done a turnaround. And so it was a business challenge that, uh, you know, that I appreciated, but also one that needed doing. I mean, that sounds uh, maybe too, too grandiose, but I think the world needs the press club. And I think the United States and our democracy need the press club and journalism needs it. And um, so it was a, it was a, a business that needed to be worked on but it was a concept that needed to be uh, supported and sustained. And so that was what was in my head then. 
the importance of those decisions you took uh, were tested like no one expected in 2020 when the pandemic came and the club was, of course, not immune to the impact of months long closer closures and false starts and uh, abandoned reopenings and all the rest of it. Take us back to those dark and uncertain days and what moments stand out for you? Yeah, well, um, I think it's quite, quite literally the case that uh, the press club of 2007, when I came in, would not have been able to survive uh, the pandemic uh, financially. And um, I mean, even with good, good reserves, it was a challenge. Um, so I, I am glad that we, we uh, took those business decisions at the, and I'm glad of the great, you know, support from the presidents. Uh, you know, I, I have uh, been able to work with over the years, Donna Line One Leger and Mark Hamrick and Jerry Zrimsky and, and, and many others in the early days who really, um, you know, stu- stood in and, and, and supported um, the changes because you can't do that in one year. We had to have a sustained effort over a you know, decade. We didn't know what was coming, you know, uh, to prepare ourselves. Um, there were times after nine 11 where, where we would say that we were preparing ourselves for the next, you know, big terrorist attack and um, just, and, and the impact it might have financially. Well, this, this was way beyond, uh, you know, what might happen. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, we needed every bit of what we had and a lot of the, um, the teamwork that was necessary and, and, and all that. What I remember, I remember being with Mike Friedman, who did an awesome job on this um, member of your, of your broadcast team and a friend of friend of both of ours. And, Mike and I were were in his office and we were watching, uh, had the TV on and talking through what we needed to do and when. And it was just at that time that we saw that uh, the NBA was shutting down. Uh, and for some reason, this became super real for us uh, in a hurry that way. You know, we're both sports fans, but, you know, for, for some reason, you know, when we heard that that was happening, we, you know, we knew life as we know it is rapidly changing and that we needed to really accelerate our discussions about what, what we had to do at the club to keep members uh, safe. I, since it's a podcast, I'm just going to give you one quick thing. Uh, uh, Jason Rezaian was doing a, a, a podcast on um, Spotify uh, about his experiences. And I was, I was asked to be a participant in that. This is during the pandemic. And uh, so what happened was the producer who was in Washington uh, called and said, like, we need to drop off some equipment with you. And uh, this was not a time that we were seeing each other face to face. And it was before vaccines and all that. And so I heard my doorbell ring went to the door and then in the, like the middle of my sidewalk was a box. And then maybe 15 feet back from that was the person producer, you know, outside, but wearing a mask and uh, she waved and I waved and she left and I went out and got the box and brought it in and assembled the equipment to make the, you know, uh, to make, help make the podcast. And, you know, it's just, 
we did that kind of stuff, I think, in some version or another, kind of every day. But now it seems so surreal, uh, you know, that we were a danger to each other and um, and had to go to uh, lengths to think about how to do things safely. And of course, in a social environment like the club, all the more so. Yeah. Ironically, the club had its most profitable year in 2022, and yet Washington is a changed place after the pandemic, arguably. There's less foot traffic, at least around the part of the city that the National Press Building is in. Um, You know, what does a changed downtown core, at least for the foreseeable future, mean for the club today and perhaps going forward? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, There are a lot of little lunch only spots right around where our office is and uh, where the, you know, where the press club is. And, and uh, there many of them are not open uh, because uh, as you say, the foot traffic is not there. The people are not working um, in office and uh, some of that's changing. There's a little more of that occurring, but it's always two or three days a week kind of thing. And Mm -hmm. You can notice it. I mean, the traffic is less. The traffic on the street is less. Washington is one of the uh, worst cities, I guess I would say, in this. I mean, I think it's 40 percent return to work uh, for downtown and because so many of the jobs are uh, doable, remote. Um, and the, just the club isn't, you know, I mean, we really have to. It's a facility. We've got to be there and you need the customers to be there. Um, and as you say, we've we're doing fine on events right now. People are wanting to come back and be in person on events. Um, We have fewer of the members who are working downtown, I would say. And so it becomes a different kind of decision instead of let's go over to the club or let's drop into the club. um, It's, it's more like you really have to plan to go to the club. And, you know, that's something we have to overcome. I think members have to be patient with that. Um, you know, we, we are adding back in the services, you know, and yet we don't want to add back in the services with, uh, you know, if they're not, if there there's not the traffic, you know, to make use of them. So it's a, it's a rolling process and um, we appreciate, you know, the members working to help make this happen. I think the teams are awfully important as far as, members return to office. Uh, so we're doing a lot of hybrid where about half the team might be in person and half the team is, is remote. And honestly, I think it's going to take a year or two until we really see something that more resembles the club we're used to. A couple of questions looking forward. Uh, you intend to stay in your role until your successor is in place. It's been announced that person is Didier Soji, the general manager of the foreign correspondence club of Hong Kong. Tell us a bit about him. Oh, he's a bright, engaged, thoughtful person. Uh, he's a he's a Swiss uh, national with also um, Australian and New Zealand uh, passports. He's worked uh, classically trained in uh, culinary arts in and hospitality in uh, Switzerland, which is a very high standard. And um, he's a French French speaker, but English speaker also, but. French is his original language. And he's, he's led uh, resorts in interesting places like New Zealand and Australia. And um, 
he's, you know, for the last several years, he's been the uh, uh, GM at the Foreign Correspondence Club of Hong Kong, as you mentioned, which is, uh, has, has its own kind of press freedom challenges where the, the government provides the, the building, uh, that they use, um, it's a beautiful building. I haven't seen it in person, but I've seen the photos. And, uh, so Didier has had the experience of being in a, in a country that is, um, you know, not, not welcoming, uh, to, um, free press in the way Hong Kong, you know, itself once was. And, uh, so he's, he's learned a lot. And I think those are lessons that can be, you know, well applied in his new, uh, in his new role. Um, he's married. He has a eight year old, uh, uh, son and, uh, you know, they will all be, they will all be coming to the States. He, he, has not worked in the States or lived, lived here. He's visited here. So I think it's a big, uh, you know, it's a big uh, opportunity for him, but I think we've, we found a, uh, through our search uh, and the members did a great job on this shout outs uh, to Jen Judson in particular, who was involved in it, but we found a great, a great person who has a skill set that, that fits. And I think he'll thrive here. Uh, and just a nice guy. I mean, I think members will really appreciate um, appreciate him. No, we look forward to to welcoming him. Uh, two quick last questions. First, what's next for you? Oh, you know, I've been telling people I'm planning to be 67 full time, uh, but I I'm going to remain involved in uh, in press freedom in some way, um, and I'm going to do some consulting, uh, you know, and that sort of thing. Uh, initially with, I'll do some with the club. Um, they've asked me to, uh, be available to, uh, uh, Didier for three months when he comes on. I don't think I'll be in the office for that. I'm probably going to be, you know, remote and may come in from time to time when he wants to see me. Um, but, uh, uh, no, no great plans. I guess I would say not interested really at this point in, uh, uh, being involved in leading an, an organization that's, you know, a hundred people, the way the, the press club was, I've been meeting payroll on some level or another since 1986. So that there's a lot of responsibility in that and a lot of, you know, pressure in that. And it's wonderful uh, stuff, but I think it's time to, for me to at least take a break, do a little travel, uh, take on projects, uh, but not in a, as sustained a way as I have been. Your tenure is especially noteworthy, not just for its duration, but for what you've accomplished. Last question. What will you miss most? Oh, gosh, uh, that's a good one. So, I, you know, I'm going to say I, I will miss um, the, uh, the members and the and the uh, staff. I, I do hope to, you know, see the members and staff uh, on a kind of an ongoing basis, but there's a real sense in these kind of jobs where you do have to step away and not be as present to make space for the, you know, the new team and the new guy. So I'm mindful of that. And, uh, uh, but I'll find my ways and, uh, you know, long time, 15 years working, but also, you know, 20 years before that. So uh, a lot of friendships made and, um, you know, I, I like to say to people that there aren't that many places in the world where you can 
join and make friends. Uh, and it becomes harder and harder as life, as life goes on. So press club is that, and it was that for me, whether I was working or, you know, or, or participating as a member. So I'll, I'll miss that. And I'll miss the place in a way. It's just a active, fun, vibrant kind of environment. And, uh, news there is all around you and all that. Yeah. I'll miss that. But I also think it's time to, uh, you know, start focusing on some, uh, some other things, you know, that are not necessarily happening in the 44,000 square feet that I, that I was given some responsibility for. Well, Bill, I appreciate your time today, but more importantly, thank you sincerely on behalf of thousands of MPC members and journalists everywhere and communicators for your selfless service to the club as well as its admission here in Washington, D.C. and around the world. I'm Adam Cano. Thanks again for listening. You have been listening to Update One, the official podcast of the National Press Club, the world's leading professional organization for journalists and a vigorous advocate of press freedom worldwide. If you have any questions or comments about Update One, send an email to updateonepodcast at gmail.com.